Amen. Thank you, Austin. Uh, our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6. We are finishing uh, for this fall, anyway, uh, this portion of First and Second Samuel, focusing on the ark. We started in First Samuel 4, uh, where Israel tries to bring up the ark from the Philistines. We end in Second Samuel 6, which is another scene where David is trying to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And so we started with the ark and ended with the ark, and, and really it's a way of bracketing all the material in between. And so uh, let's read. This is a really, really uh, fascinating, uh, fantastic passage. In many ways, and I know preachers are guilty of saying these things, but um, about 25 years ago I heard a sermon on this text, and it kind of altered the trajectory of my life. And so I have high hopes this morning, for me, not for you necessarily. Okay, I can't control what God does for you, but, but for me. Uh, I think there's some really important stuff for us to learn here. Okay, let's read together. It really is a, an amazing story. Second Samuel 6. <clears throat> David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. It's a Presbyterian worship service. I thought that's yeah. just a joke. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord. That day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is God's word. Would you say with me? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. When I was a kid, Winter Haven was still mainly orange groves. It's been really interesting to see it change over the years. And in third grade, my friend Chad lived in the back of the Valencia, Wood, Valencia Woods neighborhood on Escambia Drive, I think, or somewhere back there. And at that time, all the way down to Lake Merriam from where the last house was, it was just orange groves all the way down to the lake. And we would go out his backyard and into those groves, and we would climb the trees, and we would have orange wars in the groves, and have all kinds of fun. And if you grew up in Winter Haven, this is what kids did, okay? We played outside, first of all. It was this amazing thing. It was really great. 
uh, and we would do this until the day when the grove owner, he must have known that we had been doing this, he set his dogs loose on us. <clears throat> and they were big and scary. In my imagination, if you've ever seen the movie Sandlot, they were, it was like the dog in Sandlot. You know what I mean? Like, not nearly as scary. It felt like that to me, but probably not quite so scary. Truthfully, truthfully, the dogs may have just been wanting to play with us. I don't know, but we were sure that they were out for blood, and we ran for our lives all the way back to his house. And soon, though, there were beware of dogs signs posted around the property, stapled onto the trees. Now, we were eight, so you don't think that kept us out of the groves, do you? But we went in armed. Seriously. I don't remember with what, not with real guns, maybe BB guns or something, but with weapons, sticks and slingshots, and we would climb the trees, and we would have our orange wars, and we would scout for those dogs, and we made booby traps for the dogs. It was a whole thing. It became like a year-long, I would go over all the time, and we would do it. But to this day, whenever I see a beware of dog sign, it isn't an empty threat, not entirely. It puts me on alert to some degree. And that got me thinking a little bit, what if, <laughs> what if when you came to church this morning, as you walked in the doors, on the doors of the church, there was a posted a beware of God sign? <laughs> it's something that kind of makes you chuckle, doesn't it? How would that land on you? If before you came on these precincts, there were all of these signs posted, beware of God. Annie Dillard has this wonderful passage in Teaching a Stone to Talk when she says this. She says, and I've read it to you before, but this is something that I want to get loaded up into our consciousness. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke, or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness, she said, to wear ladies' straw hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares, she said. And it was a critique of how casually, thoughtlessly, we often approach the worship of a God before whom the Psalms say, the mountains melt like wax. A consuming wildfire, according to Hebrews chapter 12. Think about that image. See, Annie Dillard argued that we should put up beware of God signs on the church doors so that everybody knew what they were getting themselves into, the danger they were putting themselves in just by coming in. Because if God were to show up, it would be quite a thing this morning, wouldn't it? But here's hoping he does. That's really what this passage is about. It is a passage about the serious danger of not taking God seriously. And you see two things, really, in the two main characters that I want to highlight this morning. There's Uzzah and there's David, and they have very two different approaches to the handling and the, of the ark and the worship of God in this text. And with Uzzah, you see, really, the danger of the trivialization of God, the way we can trivialize God and the danger of it. And then in David, you see the beauty of really what is the fear of the Lord. 
And it's interesting to see those two things side by side, and, I, and we'll walk through the text a little bit and you'll see, but I really just want to talk, talk around those two things. The danger of trivializing God, the beauty of fearing the Lord, and where we really should land as we come to this text. Okay, so first, let's start with Uzzah because it's where the text starts and talk about the trivialization of God for a minute. It was Uzzah's failure. And the lesson is God's not safe, that there is a danger to his holiness, that we really probably should post beware of God signs on the church doors. So let's set the scene for just a minute, okay? David, by this point, had been installed as king, and the first official act of his administration was to bring the ark of God up to Jerusalem, his capital city. And bringing the ark to Jerusalem made a clear statement that the king's throne should not exist without God's throne. David understood that God should not be a hobby. That he, if he is who he says he is, must be the central focus and reality of our lives. That the worship of God should be the main thing in every human life. The most important thing, the most central thing, no matter whatever other things you're doing in your life. Now, a man named Uzzah was chosen to transport the ark to the city of David And 30 years prior, we know kind of the story in the background that the ark had come to his father's house, Abinadab, after causing lots of trouble among the Philistines. Maybe you remember that text. Everywhere the ark went, the Philistines, plagues broke out against them and all kinds of bad things happened. And so after causing all that trouble, the Israelites recovered the ark from their enemies at a place called Beth Shemesh. But some of the men there, and you can read about this in 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6, when the ark was recovered by the Israelites, some of the men were careless And it's unclear exactly what they did, but in handling the ark carelessly, 70 of them died. Now, this material, by the way, is clearly the inspiration for the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where people's faces are melting off because of the ark of God, okay? It is, because of what you see here. And that's kind of the picture you're supposed to get of what happened there in Beth Shemesh. People's faces started melting off because they they mishandled the ark. They were... And, and so what happens is, is as that takes place, the people become very afraid. And then there were no volunteers. Somebody said, where are we going to put this thing? And everybody's, not in my house. Uh, no way. I don't want that thing anywhere near me. And they kind of one by one backed away until a man named Abinadab took in the ark. And Abinadab was Uzzah's father. Okay, and so for 30 years, Uzzah had grown up with the ark of God, like in the living room. Think about that. But here's the problem, 30 years have gone by, and 30 years is a long time. And by the time we get to this scene, Uzzah, Abinadab, David, the whole lot had forgotten, I think, what happened at Beth Shemesh. They had forgotten the danger associated with the Ark of God, the danger, the threat of God's holiness. And Uzzah and his brother are leading this procession. And it really is, by the way, it really is a lesson in the danger of familiarity with the things of God. The more familiar you are with the things of God, the more in danger of the same sort of thing you are. So take that, just take that for free this morning. And so here they come, Uzzah and his brother leading the procession and David and the people began to celebrate and sing and dance. And it was quite Quite a worship service. There was lots of energy and enthusiasm and excitement, but there was one problem. They were not sensible of conditions, like Annie Dillard said. They didn't have the foggiest idea what sort of power they were invoking and all that they were doing. And when they got to the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen that were carrying the ark stumbled, and the cart 
that the ark was, was riding on began to tip, and Uzzah, because, you know, this is the natural thing you would do, he reached out his hand to steady the ark, much in the same way that somebody might reach out to grab the flag and not let it drag in the dirt. It's just the impulse you might have. And he reached out, and he, he took hold of the ark to steady it. And as soon as his hands touched it, God struck him down. And it's a sobering thing, right? But if you look there, it says clearly, verse 7, don't, don't miss this. It says, God struck him down because of his error. And we might read this and think, man, that's, that's crazy. That's harsh. What's the big deal with that? But the Bible itself is clear. What Uzzah did here was wrong, deserving of death. It was an error, a grave error. In fact, the whole thing was wrong. From the very beginning, it was too casual. It was too flippant. It was too duplicitous. The whole affair was. Now, so we have to ask, though, right? What exactly, though, what is the meat and bones of this? What exactly was Uzzah's error? And we could say that Uzzah was wrong. He was in error in both principle and in practice. And I want to touch on both those things before we move on. In principle and in practice. In principally, I think it is this, and nobody said it better than Eugene Peterson. He said it like this. It is fatal to take charge of God. Which is a really succinct, clear insight, I think, that was helpful. It is fatal to take charge of God. That was his mistake. It wasn't the mistake of a moment. He had been nurturing the impulse to take charge of God for the 30 years the ark had spent in the living room of his house. So listen to Eugene Peterson because it's so good. He says, Uzzah is the person who has God in a box. Uzzah had God where he wanted him and intended to keep him there. And the eventual consequence of this kind of life is death, for God will not be managed. God will not be put and kept in a box, whether the box is constructed of crafted wood or hewn stone or brilliant ideas or fine feelings. We don't, he goes on to say, we don't take care of God. God takes care of us. So principally, it's an interesting insight, isn't it? It's fatal to take charge of God. Now, practically, something very specific is happening here. And the law gave specific instructions about transporting the ark. There are a number of things. It wasn't to be touched by human hands. It was to be covered as it was being transported so that it couldn't be seen, so that it remained kind of mysterious to the people. It was very clearly to be carried by Levites using poles that were detailed description in the law of God that were to be inserted through rings that were crafted into the design of the ark itself. And this was how it was to be carried from place to place. Now, what we see here is that all of that is being ignored because it says, look, verse 3, that they put the ark on a cart which was then pulled by oxen, and the oxen were driven by Uzzah and his brother. Now, that was the way that the ark had come to them from the Philistines, but it was not the way that God had commanded that the ark be transported. And so what you see is they, they were emotional. They were enthusiastic. It was probably really good music. But they were ignoring God's commands. They weren't intent on obedience. And when the ark stumbled and the ark, when the ox stumbled and the ark began to totter and Uzzah reached out his hand, it in direct violation of God's word, it was too late. The damage had already been done. Uzzah was guilty of trivializing God. And to trivialize something is to take something that is really big 
and make it smaller than it actually is, or to take something that's really complex and oversimplify it in a way that is unhelpful. A trivial matter is something that is not important, that doesn't really matter that much at all. And listen, can I tell you something? God is not trivial. It's interesting, the books that I've, list, that I've listed as resources for you in, your, in, in, in the outline there, as I pulled them off my shelf, I just realized how worn out they all are. <laughs> They're some of the most worn out books in my, in my library because I go back to them so often because this is something that really, really matters to me. So forgive my severity this morning, but it is a severe passage. Donald McCullough, in his book called The True Realization of God, writes, and it's fairly polemic, but bear, bear with me as I just read you this. He says this. He says, visit a church on Sunday morning. He's writing in, in 1999, so think about 25 years later how even truer this is. He says, visit a church on Sunday morning, and almost any will do. You will likely find a congregation comfortably relating to a deity who fits nicely within precise doctrinal positions who lends almighty support to social crusades and who conforms to individual spiritual experiences, but you will not likely find much awe or sense of mystery. The only sweaty palms will be those of the preacher unsure whether the sermon will go over. Reverence and awe have been replaced by a yawn of familiarity. The consuming fire has been domesticated into a candle flame, adding a bit of religious atmosphere perhaps, but no heart, no blinding light. He goes on, he says, when the story gets told, it may well be revealed that the worst sin of the church at the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century has been the trivialization of God. Now, this is nothing new, right? Months out of Egypt, as the people of God were coming out of their slavery there, Israel, because they got impatient with how long it was taking for Moses up on the mountain, made a golden calf, not to abandon God. They didn't make the golden calf to abandon God. They made the golden calf to take charge of God by refashioning him to fit their expectations and to service their desires. And there lies Uzzah, in the middle of the road here in our text, dead, to ward us off of all our attempts to try to reduce, control, manipulate, or manage God. The scene shook David awake to spiritual reality. <laughs> In a really profound way. Look what it says. It says in verse 9 that he was angry and then he was afraid. He was angry and then he was afraid. And then he asked a very profound, very important question in verse 9. He says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now, a very similar question was asked of the men by the men of Beth Shemesh in 1 Samuel 6 when the ark was first recovered from the Philistines and their fa the people's faces melted off, right? And 70 people died. They said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? I mean, we just sing a song, come and worship this holy God, right? Who is able to stand before this holy God? Let me translate that just a bit. Here's the question as it's being asked. How, how is it possible that sinful people and a holy God could come together? I mean, God cannot countenance evil. Evil cannot dwell with him, Psalm 5, verse 4 says. And we are sinful. We are evil, every single one of us. So, so how, what hope is there ever of having a relationship with God like that? How does this even happen? C.S. Lewis has this vivid image. He says, it's like we're on the outside, like we're on the wrong side of a door. And the question that just looms in our soul 
that really dominates our life and explains so much of our emotions and our behavior is this question, how do I get in? How do you get in? How do I get on the right side of the door and not the wrong side of the door? And it's a good question. It's a necessary question because that is the question that actually takes God seriously. And here's part of the answer, and we're going to kind of round to starting to answer it from the text. Because in first, excuse me, in 2 Samuel 6, 12, we see really the first part of the answer to that question. And that verse, verse 12, is actually the center of this passage. It is the main point of everything that's happening here. The author of this material has carefully crafted it and, and outlined the material to draw us to the truth of verse 12. He wants our eyes on verse 12. And the truth of verse 12 is this, that God actually wants to bless. Do you see that? God wants to embrace us. If someone needs to be invoked, it is not God who needs to be invoked. It's we that need to be invoked. If there is a door, the door is not locked from God's side. It's locked from our side. And he, as we're told in Revelation 3, stands at that door knocking, waiting for us to let him in. But, okay, but you can't come to God on your own terms. You can only come to him on his terms. You can't define things for God. He defines things for you. You can't set the agenda or the conditions. That is his prerogative, not yours. Listen, God is not your co-pilot. He's not the man upstairs. He's not your buddy. He's not your homie. If you're white, you probably shouldn't say that anyway. I shouldn't have said that probably, okay? He's not all these glib things that we say about him. Don't trivialize him like that. It is dangerous to your health. Spiritually and even potentially physically. I mean, you know, do you know that there's a place in the letter to the Corinthians where Paul said that some of the people in the church were stuck spiritually and some of them were sick and some of them had even died? Because they weren't taking God seriously as they came to the Lord's Supper together. They were eating and drinking judgment on themselves. Like, we don't preach that text. Like, who wants to talk about that in church? I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to upset you. But to be honest, I think we could do with a little bit more of that. With a little bit more reverence, a little bit more awe, I think. Because God is a consuming fire. So learn the lesson from Uzzah's failure here. But, okay, but let's not stop there because that trivializing of God needs to be contrasted with the fearing of the Lord. And so secondly, let's, let's transition over to David now and talk about the fear of the Lord. And we're reading Proverbs, and so I thought it would be a good time for a refresher. And if the problem with Uzzah's example is that God is too small, God is all eminence and no transcendence if you're... Oh, familiar with those categories God is near he's my buddy he's my you know he's he's my co-pilot but we lose a sense of God's otherness his bigness then you might think that the correction would be that you need a really big God you need a God who's all transcendence and no eminence and you take God's bigness really seriously but the problem is is if you go too far with that then you take his bigness really seriously you take his sovereignty and his holiness and his wrath and all these things really seriously, but then you don't really know him personally. And as a consequence, you start to walk around on eggshells all the time. And what I want you to see is that when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is not simply being afraid of God. Actually, it's the opposite. And that's important because even in the text, David, like, hard turn, right, went from singing and celebrating in one moment to being terrified, verse 9, in the next. 
And that is not the fear of the Lord. It is something else. That turn in David to fear, it says David feared God. He was, he was afraid. David was still thinking wrongly about God at that point. It says that his immediate reaction to Uzzah's death was not fear. It was actually anger first. So verse 7, it says he's angry. And that signals that David was still thinking wrongly about God and all of this. It was further evidence of his desire to take charge of God. He was unhappy that God was not going along with his plans. He was angry that God cannot be managed. But by the end of the passage, though, he, he's getting it right. He was dancing and singing again like he was at the beginning, but this time with, with completely different motivations from a completely different place with the right appreciation for God's holiness and his otherness in his bigness, okay? And that's what we need to kind of parse out. But the Exodus 20 passage, which Austin read a bit ago, is so, so important, I think, because it contrasts two different kinds of fear there. And it's this fascinating phrase in verse 20. You should probably get your eyes on it because it really is striking. So Exodus 20, 20, where Moses tells the people, this is the command that Moses gives to them, do not fear God so that you might fear God. Do you see that? Do not fear him so that you might fear him. See, David was afraid with that first kind of fear that Moses is warning of there. It was the wrong kind of fear. And David actually had to figure out how to not be afraid like that in order to properly fear God with the kind of fear that leads to obedience and worship. And that's what we have to do too. And that's what I'd like to do with the remainder of our time. Now, Michael Reeves has argued that being afraid of God is sinful fear, actually, because it flows from sin. James, you know, says in his letter, chapter 2, verse 19, that even the demons believe in God, and when they think of God, they shudder. Ooh. I mean, think about that. That the, that the spiritual forces of darkness are afraid of God. It is the fear the first man and the first woman had when they sinned and rebelled against God. The fear of the sinner, the rebel, of the person running from God. And the Bible says... If you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not sure what you believe, listen, because I think there's some wonderful self-knowledge you can have here and some great uh, psychology for you to, to wrestle through. The Bible says that every person, whether they're conscious of it or not, that we know that God is there and that we know that there is an objective moral grain to the universe and that we know that we are guilty of trying to live against that grain. And as a consequence of that, we are terrified of God because we know that if we were to ever meet him and he were to make an evaluation of our life that we deserve to be condemned for the things that we've done. This is the way your conscious conscience works. And so you keep God at a distance because you don't see a way past all of the bad things that you've done. That's where a lot of people live. Martin Luther described his pre-conversion feelings about God. He said, I did not love, yes, I hated, listen to this, this is Martin Luther. This is the person who birthed the Reformation, okay? He said, I did not love, I hated. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemy, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. That is David in verse seven. God was a terror to Martin Luther. He was a terror to David at first, but that terror is not the fear of the Lord. It is a sinful fear because it is rooted in unbelief. It is rooted in wrong ideas about who God is. It was the strategy of Satan in the garden and then again with Jesus in Gethsemane to present God to his sons as a negative threat so that they would be afraid and their trust in him would be eroded and it would lead to a failure of obedience on their part. See how that works? 
Now, here's the irony. Ironically, people a lot of times are driven away from God by this fear, but they're being driven into religion. They're driven away from God by being driven into religion when they try to deal with their fear by being good and trying to satisfy that nagging sense in their conscience by obeying all the rules and keeping God happy with their right behavior. Because with religion, you take God really seriously. But ironically, when you take God so seriously, you don't take him seriously enough. And this is where the great insight by Richard Lovelace, who mentored Tim Keller in the gospel, by the way, comes in. He said that even people who mostly get it right, they figure out how to obey the Ten Commandments for the most part, at least, on the surface level. And people see them and think, man, that's a person. That's a person who's got it figured out. They got it together. But really, these people that we look at and we see this way, really, if you could see inside their, their life, they're an absolute mess. Because their obedience, no matter how good it is, it doesn't satisfy their own conscience, no matter how hard they try. It's never enough, which is why if you've been in religious circles for very long, you know that there are a lot of religious people who are good, but man, they're mean and judgmental and angry. And it's because they're trying so hard and it isn't working. It isn't even working in their own heart. And underneath all of that stuff, they're radically insecure, even more than before, because they thought maybe this will do it, and it hasn't, and so they're terrified, terrified of messing up or of being outdone by somebody else, and what's happened is, is the religion that they caught has made them more afraid, not less. Now, let me say this. If you're a traitor, it's right to be afraid of the king. You should be afraid of the king. If you're guilty, it's right to be afraid of the judge when you stand before him in the courtroom. And if you're a sinner, it is right to be afraid of God at first. At first, but even God does not want you to stay afraid. He wants that first kind of fear to die away so that you can learn to fear him with the right kind of fear, with the fear of the Lord, a fear that drives you to him and to his goodness, not away from him, a fear that comes from a sense of God's love and mercy, a strange strange as that might sound, Michael Reeves says this, he says, fear of God is not one side of our reaction to God. It is not simply that we love God for his graciousness and fear him for his majesty. That would be a lopsided fear of God. We also love him in his holiness and tremble at the marvelousness of his mercy. True fear of God is true love for God. So David's singing and dancing at the beginning. What we learn is, is how empty it was. It was hype and emotionalism. But his singing and dancing at the end, though, that was because he was so overwhelmed by all of God. He had come to be so overwhelmed by all of God, by his majesty and his mercy, by his greatness and his goodness. And yes, I think fear is the best word for it, because according to Michael Reeves again, he says, fear is the best word for this because it suggests a physical experience of being overwhelmed, of weak need, trembling, of being staggeringly discomposed. But the fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God. It's being overwhelmed by God, by all of him, but most of all by his love. See, David was reminded of God's goodness. That's the turning point in the story. Back to verse 12 again, if you would go there with me. He heard the report of how the Lord had blessed the house of Obed-Edom. Verse 6, by the way, Obed-Edom, we're told, was a Gittite. That means he was a Philistine. Do you remember those guys? They're the bad guys, right? I mean, you remember the story? We've been following this story for a while. Those are the bad guys. Those are the, those are the people that God said, listen, somebody go and just wipe those people off the face of the earth. So not an Israelite, 
a Philistine. What's the, what's, the, what's the lesson in that? God, God is a God of grace. He delights to show, show mercy. His heart is to bless and not to harm even his enemies. And there had to be a moment, you know, where David thought, okay, here I am doing my best. I'm just trying to do the best, the right thing here, God. And this bad thing happens, and here's this Philistine, and he gets the blessing. Like, what's up with that? That's how I imagine it going. And then I imagine the lights coming on in David's imagination and suddenly him no longer being afraid because he realized, oh, if God is that eager to bless him, then surely God is that eager to bless me. And so he tries again. He goes down, verse 12, to bring up the ark of the God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So see, here's the thing. The fear of the Lord can make you unafraid. Because it's rooted in the, the fear of the Lord can make you unafraid because it's rooted in the gospel. Notice the deep intuition even here to make sacrifices. Did you see that two times in verse 13, which we read, and then again in verse 17? This whole thing is surrounded by the sacrifices that they're making. And the answer to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, to the question, how can God and sinners come together, was just this that the ark was part of the furniture in the tabernacle where the priests would make sacrifices for the sins of the people. And the blood from those sacrifices would then be sprinkled on the lid of the ark, signifying that God had been propitiated, that the life God demanded for sin had been given. Not the life of the worshiper, but the life of the sacrifice in the place of the worshiper. And the sacrifice was God's way of dealing with sin, God's way of dealing with this problem of how do sinful people and a holy God get together so that their sins could be forgiven and the relationship that he desired to have with his people could be restored and sustained. But, you know, we just finished reading Hebrews recently. And if you read Hebrews, you know that this whole system that God had in place really didn't work. Not ultimately, it wasn't a final solution because they had to keep going back and making sacrifices. I mean, over and over again, sacrifice, David sacrificed in verse 13 and then he turned around and sacrificed in verse 17 again. They had to keep making these sacrifices. It was this continual loop they were in because the rivers of blood were not sufficient. They could not deal with sin. Not finally, all of the lambs that were slain, whose blood was sprinkled upon the lid of the ark, the footstool of God, all of those were not in themselves the thing. They pointed forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God, capital L, who we're told in the Gospels is the one who takes away the sins of the world through his death upon the cross. And so the message of Christianity at its heart, the message of the cross is just this, that this holy God, who would strike a man dead in the middle of the road is also a merciful God. So loving, in fact, that he himself bore the penalty for our sins so that we could have his righteousness as a gift. He took upon himself our curse so that we could enjoy the blessing of God's presence like Obed-Edom, but without any of the threat. It's all his doing. It's all grace. You see, at the cross, you see a God who is actually far more loving and also far more dangerous than you would ever imagine on your own. At the same time, you see more of God. You see more of his holiness and also more of his mercy. It's like that scene that I referenced Thursday night if you came to the service or Wednesday night at the service where Lucy finally sees Aslan in Prince Caspian and she says, oh, you're bigger. And he says, no, child, I'm not bigger. You're just older. And he says, just the, the older you get, the more mature you get, the more you grow, the bigger I'll become. See, that's, that's, that's the fear of the Lord is this sense of I see more of God's holiness and more of God's mercy and more and more and more and more as I go along. I learn the lesson that God is not safe, but he is good. And it's that combination 
that makes him so glorious. It's when you see and experience those two things side by side that you start to tremble, tremble the way he intends for you to. And it is a brilliant insight. It's a brilliant insight, and it's why the quote from C.S. Lewis is so so enduring about Aslan that's been so immortalized that he is not safe but good. But see, here's the thing. It in no way makes you flippant. It doesn't make you flippant at all. I mean, do you remember how Mr. Beaver put it to the children there? He said, if anyone can come before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. And I would tell you, there's a lot of silliness. There's a lot of silliness that's part bad theology, part pop psychology, part man-centered humanism that passes for Christianity. The gospel, though, the gospel is the power of God that can make you brave, braver than most. Not flippant, not casual, just not afraid. And there's a difference. Now, don't miss it. And then we're going to finish. Don't miss it. There was real, concrete repentance that happened here. Look at verse 13. It says, it's just a little note. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. What's changed? This time the ark's not on a cart. This time they're doing it the way they're supposed to do it. They've realigned their life with God's commands and God's design. No cart this time. They ditched the cart and did it the way the Lord said. So here's my question to you. What about you? What do you need to ditch? What would the fear of the Lord lead you to ditch? Now, that's not actually the takeaway. Here's the takeaway. What's the takeaway? What does a life of fearing God in order to not be afraid really look like practically? And I think we have a really great picture here, and I want to leave you with it without much explanation. It says this, and I just think this is so wonderful. In verse 13, it says that those, they were doing it right this time, right? They, were, they, were, they had chosen people to bear the ark on the poles, carrying it on their shoulders, through the little hoops that had been into, woven into the design. And it says that when those who bore the ark went six steps, they set it down, and they had a worship service. And that, I think, is the way we should live. Stopping every six steps to worship and give thanks because we're so amazed. We're so overwhelmed at God's mercy to us. And that is what will set you like David in verse 14, dancing before the Lord with all of his might. Now, I am here to report that I have seen Jonathan Winfrey dance before the Lord with all of his might. And it, it happened it was great. I don't have video evidence. I think the last time we went through this material, he preached on this text, and he actually told the story. So you can look in the archives and hear it from his own mouth. But it was, it was amazing. And I would just say to you, if, you have never, if you've never danced before the Lord with all your might, you've not lived, people. This is the kind of thing the gospel should do in our life. But see, the problem is not just that there's too little, too little reverence in all. There is also too little joy in dancing before the Lord, too. People who take God seriously, they are full of reverence and full of joy. Because that's what the fear of the Lord looks like. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine being one of these people that were chosen to carry the ark? Can you imagine how utterly terrified you would be? I mean, can you imagine what those six steps would have been like? It's like, good you know I mean like you know for six steps I mean can you imagine 
Can you imagine six steps and the relief that you would have felt, the wonder and the awe at God's mercy because you were finally awake to your sin in a way you should be? See, when you live with a true sense of your sin and with a proper view of your unworthiness and God's holiness, then if you live with that, then six steps will amaze you. It will be an overwhelming mercy that will sit on your soul and set your body to dancing. You you won't be able to get six steps without stopping and calling for celebration. And that's how we should live all the time. It really is. But only if we have our hearts tethered to the words of the hymn, of the hymn writer that we just sang a little while ago. Um, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ. The solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So, Father, we dare not take you lightly this morning and allow ourselves to become flippant and to trivialize you, but we dare not. We dare not. We dare not show you the proper worship and joy that you are worthy of because of all that you've done for us in Jesus. We dare not allow our hearts to remain hard and cold to you because you are a God who loves sinners. And you have gone to such great lengths to make a way for people like us to be with you because you so desire that kind of intimacy and love between us. And so even in these last moments, as we now turn our hearts towards you in worship, which is a fitting way to end this morning, Lord, we take six steps into the recognition of your mercy. And all we can do, all we can think to do is to stop and give thanks to your name. And so receive this worship now as just that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What a great song. So receive this word of benediction, then if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, then you can go <laughs> unafraid that God's going to come and smite you because he has uh, poured out his wrath upon the Son that he might turn his face towards you in blessing. Amen? This is why you can live unafraid, because this is the promise of God to you as we go uh, to the places he sends us this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.